Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me, my squadcast, uh, is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and a special guest for tonight. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, we're very pleased uh, to be able to uh, go back to one of the things that we start our show off with is talking about you know, things that are going on in the big picture in the, in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, so we're lucky to have with us uh, this evening, uh, Dr. Nate Mantua. Nate is from the uh, NOAA Fisheries uh, Science Center in Santa Cruz. Uh, he co-directs the Climate Impact Group, and he's head of the Landscape Ecology Team. He's got a really wonderful career. He started off uh, back in 2000 with a, an award from NOAA for his work on the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which we'll probably get into in a great deal of detail this evening. But uh, Nate, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, a lot of changes going on in the ocean uh, in the last 15 to 20 years. And uh, you've, you've, you've studied uh, from the standpoint of a, a climate climatologist a lot of, of these things and the forcing mechanisms and how they actually, uh, what's happening in the atmosphere actually gets expressed in terms of uh, biological cycles and so forth. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this and a little bit of your story. I know you're a local guy and maybe you could kind of fill us in from the start about how you became interested in uh, atmospheric sciences. Sure. Yeah, it really connects with where I grew up, which was Bodega Bay and how I grew up, which was outside in rivers and creeks and on the ocean. <laughs> and I was just one of these people that was born fascinated with fish and fishing. So my earliest memories are me with a fishing rod or even a hand, a hand line, a drop line off the docks in Bodega Bay and in some of the creeks. And as I grew older, I also got really interested in weather and in how it affects the ocean. And in 1982 and 83, if you were on the California coast, you probably remember that there was a, a big event at the time that some people at the time were calling it the climate event of the century. And it was a, an El Nino. And El Nino was being blamed for really wild and damaging weather that we experienced in that winter of 82, 83, kind of like the winter that we're living in right now that hasn't really transitioned to spring yet. And it also came with big changes in the ocean that impacted the salmon fishery. And my family had been in Bodega Bay for a few generations before me and tied in with the fishing industry. My grandmother worked in fish processing for about 50 years, filleting fish at the docks and at some of the processing plants. My father grew up working on the docks and ended up owning and operating a general store that catered to the commercial fishing industry and, and really the salmon industry that the thing that kept us going was the commercial salmon fishery that in the 70s and the 80s was really boom times. Very different scene from where we are today, where about 90% of the fleet has gone away. And a lot of the businesses that were tied in with that and the communities that were fishing towns have changed, including Bodega Bay. But that 82-83 El Nino, I was in high school at the time, and it was affecting all these things I cared about. So I started to do reports on it and that got me excited about science in these different fields, um, weather, climate, the ocean, 
and marine life. I didn't actually know that you could study fisheries in college. I probably would have if I did know that, but I went to school at UC Davis after high school and started as an engineering major. Didn't like that after about a year and wandered into the atmospheric sciences department where I really liked what they had to offer, you know, small class sizes, really friendly faculty and interesting subject matter. And then I stuck with that. And after getting my degree at Davis, I immediately went to University of Washington to pursue a PhD focused on El Nino and to understand how does this thing work and can we predict it? So I focused on that for six years. And in the course of my graduate studies, I took one fisheries class, a fisheries oceanography class from a professor named Bob Francis. And he and I hit it off immediately. And this was at the very end of my graduate career, probably should have been focusing on finishing my dissertation instead of taking a class in fisheries. But uh, it turned out that was a great move on my part because he and I developed a really strong friendship and interest in working together. And I left Washington, took a postdoctoral fellowship at Scripps Institute of Oceanography, where I worked on a climate prediction project, again, focused on how El Nino is coordinating climate events around the world, but wanted to get back to Seattle. And Bob was part of a new project that was going to connect climate with natural resources in the Northwest, including fisheries, forests, water, and coasts. So I came up to interview for that, and that was really exciting um, opportunity for me. And sure enough, I got the job largely because Bob um, had such a strong influence on choosing me over some other really great candidates. And then I ended up working there for 17 years, focused on these more interdisciplinary studies of how climate is affecting natural resources and salmon became one of the focal areas of my work. And it really forces you to think about really broad landscapes, watersheds, and the ocean all together. If you want to understand salmon and how climate is impacting them, you've got to follow them through their whole life cycle. And some of our salmon, you know, they're occupying the biggest watersheds in North America, like the Columbia Basin, uh, the Central Valley of California. So that takes you through really interesting microclimates and different terrain, you know, the inland deserts, high mountain peaks, coastal rainforests, and then into the big estuaries like the Salish Sea or the lower Columbia River, San Francisco Bay and Delta, and then out into the ocean. And depending on the different species, they may spend their life in the near shore, close to the coastline over the continental shelf, or they might go far offshore up to the middle of the North Pacific for two or three years. So that really fits with my kind of framework for thinking about nature and, and how climate affects things over these really big scales. You know, so I, I'm always talking about like the basin scale processes and then trying to think about things that come back to local areas, you know, where people live and fish and carry out their lives, uh, like our watersheds. And salmon has got this unifying force for moving across those seascapes and, and watersheds. Yeah, the salmon populations tell us a lot about what's going on on a very broad scale in a lot of different environments because of their life cycle. That's right. And 
and you know somebody who was really influential in my thinking about salmon is a retired fishery scientist up in the northwest jim likatowicz he's got a couple of beautiful books one of them though salmon without rivers i just uh, was always struck with the way he talked about how salmon really require a chain of connected habitats that has to be complete and if you have a break in any link in that chain that's end of the story for them and their special talent is finding a way where there's an opportunity and something that you know we see in california and what's really important in the work we do here in uh, our noaa lab in santa cruz is try to understand you know where the weak links in the chain are so that we can protect these species and recover the ones that are suffering from degraded habitat and low population size which unfortunately characterizes almost all the salmon and steelhead in this state. Yeah, and we're, we're accustomed to thinking about the parts we can see easily, right? The rivers uh, and the, all the damage that's been done there and the habitat alteration, but you are looking further out. I remember, you know, when I first started reading about this stuff decades ago, it seemed like we didn't really know a whole lot about what happened to salmon once they got out of the rivers and into the ocean. And it sounds like you've been answering some of those questions. Yeah, so the study of salmon in the ocean has not gotten the same kind of depth of uh, research and history as what we have on land simply because it's harder to access the fish and to see what's going on. But there have been ongoing studies and piecing together this mystery of the salmon life at sea. And, you know, that continues with new technologies and methods to tag and track fish some of uh, the people who work in our partner lab up in the Northwest Fishery Science Center out of Newport in Seattle, they've been capturing immature salmon out in the ocean, hook and line fisheries, and then getting them on board, put them in a recovery tank and implanting tags that emit an acoustic signal that's unique to that fish. And those fish get recovered and put back in the ocean and they have a network of receivers off the Washington coast, some in British Columbia and some even up in Alaska, where they can detect the passage of those individual fish all the way up into the Gulf of Alaska, you know, over the continental shelf and then back again. And we've done a lot of that kind of tagging and tracking work in the Central Valley to understand the movement and survival of juvenile salmon that are either released from hatcheries or caught in traps that are below the rearing areas. Uh, for the naturally born fish. And, you know, we've learned a lot just about their movement on an individual basis and survival, how that relates to the environment, at least in our rivers. But on the ocean side, we're starting to collect more of that kind of information to sort out what are these individual fish doing? And it's really interesting because different stocks, use different parts of the ocean at different times of year. And the other thing that has been underway for decades now is different types of tagging. So coated wire tag programs were developed in seventies and eighties. And, you know, this is something where they put a small wire in the snout of fish at hatcheries so that you can track instead of individuals, say batches of fish that are being released at the same time, in the same location. And then they get recovered either in a fishery out in the ocean or back in the spawning grounds. Um, their carcasses get picked up and then they 
just take a magnetic wand and wand it over their nose to see that you get a detection. If there is a detection, you know, you cut that nose off and dissect it. You find the wire, put it under a microscope and you say, oh, I know where this fish came from, when it was released and what location. So that has developed uh, a lot of information about where fish go on average out in the ocean from different groups and where they get recovered in fisheries. And then there's even more modern techniques where you take a fin clip and look at its DNA. And there are DNA libraries now for salmon of all species around the Pacific Rim where you can match up individual fish with its family group or its um, sort of larger family trees to distinguish a Klamath River Chinook from a Central Valley Chinook. You can even distinguish spring run Chinook from fall run Chinook by different parts of their genome. And, you know, that's another really interesting thing that has opened up insights into how these different groups of fish are using the ocean, sometimes in very similar ways, but also sometimes in different ways. And, you know, we've got some really interesting studies that were produced out of this lab with this, they call it genetic stock ID and recovery is telling us how Klamath River fish tend to use the ocean a little differently than Central Valley Chinook salmon, for instance, that our Central Valley fish tend to be in shallower water, um, over the shelf, a little bit further south on average than Klamath River fish that tend to be a little bit more offshore and a little bit further north. But there's a lot of overlap and it changes year to year. And now this is something that we're starting to talk about quite a bit here is better understanding those year to year changes in the ocean distribution of the fish because that impacts the way the fisheries are managed that depending on you know which ones are being targeted for harvest you can craft seasons that have time area openings and closings that are designed to try and focus on say central valley fall chinook and avoid klamath river fall chinook you know that's a kind of one of these issues in the ocean there's no boundaries out there. So the fish don't have to follow their historic patterns. And that's something we've seen in, in recent years that they haven't been as faithful to some of these past patterns. Um, and that's messed up some of the harvest planning um, just by changing those distributions and their vulnerability to being caught in different parts of the ocean at different times. Nate, uh, you talked about tagging. Um, I know when I was up in Alaska uh, with the Exxon Valdez thing, part of the restoration program that we funded was uh, otolith mass marking, uh, particularly for pink, pink salmon hatcheries. How does that play in to some of the uh, some of the uh, fisheries that we have in California and in the Northwest? Is that just too few fish or hatchery raised to make that a good investment or uh, yeah, so that has not been a primary tool in California or on the West Coast for Chinook and Coho and Steelhead, the otolith mass marking, the way it has been with Alaska pinks. And I think, you know, it might be that it's more cost effective to do the coat of our tag type tagging that we do. They're on bigger fish that can handle that tag. It provides more sort of precise information at a lower effort of recovering the information than what you get with pink salmon. They're being released at really small sizes, you know, soon after they're hatched 
as fry. So they're too small up there to take a tag of any kind. And then these genetic tags are really the way of the future where just getting a fin clip and having technology to rapidly determine who that fish uh, is or where it came from. The genetic tagging is getting so good now that they actually do what's called parentage based tagging. So if we know the parents uh, and we're starting to do that a, a lot at the hatchery programs, we have a whole library for the parents that are spawned together and then you can get a fish of the next generation, look at its DNA and say, oh, this came from this mom and this dad <laughs> and you could get it back to the family. Wow. Well, that opens a lot of, a lot of, lots of possibilities for fitness studies. That's right. We have a lot of different things that we're interested in with uh, the ocean right now. And I'll tell you one of the things that I've gotten into in just the last three years that was not on my radar screen and not on anyone's radar screen. And that is the emergence of a vitamin deficiency in California's Chinook salmon. And in January of 2000, the people working at the hatcheries in the Central Valley started to see Chinook fry uh, soon after they were hatched. They get ready to put them out on the ponds and they put them into the ponds. The fish had unusually high numbers that were swimming in circles and laying on the bottom and dying before their first feed, uh, their ability to feed. And this started to alarm people. They were seeing it in multiple hatcheries. You know, there's four big Chinook hatcheries in the Central Valley. So they looked into different disease possibilities and couldn't identify a disease that was common among the programs. And someone said, well, let's check this vitamin deficiency. Vitamin B1, also known as thiamine, is a deficiency that had been detected in Great Lakes salmon and also in the Baltic Sea and had been known, you know, since the 90s um, in those systems. And sure enough, they put some of these symptomatic fry in um, vitamin water and within hours they recovered. They came up off the bottom swimming normally and began to feed. And this is a diagnostic of a vitamin deficiency problem. It's like, wow. So we got wind of that at our lab and no one here had any experience with the issue. And really almost no one in California had any experience or on the West coast. So I had a lot of contacts in the Northwest called a bunch of people that I knew working on salmon and was able to find one lead through a colleague named David Welch, who used to work at Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans and now has his own consulting company. He had just published a paper looking for this problem in Fraser River salmon and steelhead because of chronic low productivity they've been documenting there. And his work showed that they did not have evidence of a thiamine deficiency problem there. But he had a contact from the Great Lakes named Dale Honeyfield, who recently retired from the uh, USGS. And Dale spent his career working on thiamine deficiency in Great Lakes lake trout and salmon and steelhead. So I connected with him and pretty soon he connected me with a bunch of other people. And we developed a really big project now in California that's been ongoing since the winter of 2020, where we're getting eggs from all the hatcheries we immediately put those on dry ice, store them in a minus 80 
C freezer and ship them back to a lab in New York where some uh, chemists then analyzed the thiamine concentration in the eggs. And as we've developed these data sets, we found that sure enough, there is widespread thiamine deficiency in California's Chinook salmon populations, especially in the Central Valley. And we've been looking in the Klamath as well, getting samples from Iron Gate Hatchery and Trinity River Hatchery for their steelhead and coho and Chinook where they have them. And what we found is much higher thiamine levels up there on the North Coast, but a few individuals, especially last year, that had low values suggesting that it could be a problem. Um, and in the Central Valley, you know, we've seen that in each of the last three years, there has been just a lot of low thiamine, enough that it would cause this direct problem for the fry before they can feed. So elevated mortality rates after that hatch, even in the hatchery in the controlled setting. So California's hatchery system now is treating a lot of, or almost all of the juvenile production with thiamine boosters, either by injecting the moms if they're weeks away from spawning with a, a thiamine booster shot that then can get into the eggs and raise the thiamine levels or putting the eggs in thiamine bath water right at fertilization. And we've been partnered with the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the University of California on studies to track how effective these treatments are. And sure enough, they're effective and they can vastly reduce this risk of thiamine deficiency causing early mortality. But then, you know, another part of our study, one that I have been more involved in is trying to understand well, what is going on, where does this come from? And yeah, why are they doing why, why did this happen? Right. And what we see is similar to what they saw in the Baltic Sea and in the Great Lakes, where they had a change in the food web that their salmon were feeding in to a species that carries an enzyme called thiaminase that will destroy the thiamine in the meal of the predator that eats them. So northern anchovies, one of our you know, very normal salmon foods out here off the west coast, they carry an enzyme in their digestive tract that doesn't harm them at all. And somehow, you know, their physiology has got it set up in a way that it must benefit them, but it's not crystal clear how that works. But when a predator eats them and releases those digestive juices into the rest of their stomach cavity, it will strip out this critical vitamin, vitamin B1 from that meal. And vitamin B1 is something that we all need. We have to get it from the food we eat. And if we don't get it, you start to develop serious health problems. It's a critical vitamin in the whole metabolic process. It's also critical for neurological processes. And that's why you see these fish swimming around in circles and unable to kind of normally orient themselves and navigate. Um, it's also known to compromise the immune, immune systems of juvenile fish in their development if, it, if they don't have adequate thiamine. So it's really bad news. And it's a new stressor on California salmon that are already stressed out a lot. 
that's really interesting. Uh, sounds a little bit like uh, biochemical warfare, where the the, yeah. uh, the the prey are are taking something out of the food web that the predators uh, need to survive in their population, and their predators kind of controlling uh, the the population yeah. dynamics of the prey in a way. Yeah, and that's one of one of the hypotheses is that it is this kind of ecological time bomb that different prey species have developed to get back at their predators. And, and the other thing that we think is maybe driving this is how the ocean food web has evolved in the last 10 years that prior to 2014, the Northern anchovy stock was at very low levels off central and Southern California, especially, and, and really low when you get further North. But in 2015, there was a big year class, really high recruitment of Northern anchovies. And we have surveys that are focused on these coastal pelagic species like sardines, anchovies, and mackerel that will start in Baja, California and go all the way up to Vancouver Island in most years. And they go from the coast, then out off the continental shelf a few hundred miles. They use nets and acoustics to estimate the distribution and the biomass of especially sardines, mackerel, anchovies, and herring. And those surveys show that starting in about 2017, the anchovy stock grew rapidly and started expanding to the north. So I think in 2017, they were very abundant from Monterey South. 2018, they expanded up to about San Francisco. 2019, all the way up to Point Arena. 2020, up to Cape Mendocino. And you just see this expansion. And then the biomass estimates show that it, they reached record biomass in 2020. 2020 and 2021. Yeah, we actually saw that here uh, in 2020 and 21. There were just staggering quantities of anchovy uh, for the entire year offshore here. And we had in 2020, it brought in immense numbers of brown pelicans. Is that right? We had thousands of brown pelicans camped out on the Mendocino. Oh, man, they were all over the place. Yeah. 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 So and it was because of the phenomenon you just described this immense mass of anchovy moved in here and I, uh, we interviewed Bart Selby about pelicans and he sent us a, a graph, a map that showed just what you talked about, this sort of northward migration of the anchovy stocks, uh, multi-year movement. Yeah, well, it's not, I think it's more than just a movement. It's it's more of an expansion. They just, there's so many and <laughs> they're, they're occupying more and So more they're not leaving places. the south, they're just... Yeah, oh, okay. they, they remain super abundant in the Southern California Bight and off the Big Sur Coast, off Monterey or in Monterey Bay and off the Monterey Coast and the Gulf of the Farallons, you know, all the way up. And they have really taken over the coastal food web in a way that is unusual. And we have evidence for that through other surveys that target other things like krill and squid. And what we've seen in these last five years now is a relative scarcity of krill, a relative scarcity of things like juvenile rockfish. Squid have kind of been up and down, you know, and there have been very, very few sardines off of most of California, but this super abundance of anchovies. And we heard in 2019 from the fishing fleet, and we saw here in Monterey Bay that Chinook salmon were just loaded with anchovies from the beginning of the season to the end. And that was really, what they were eating. And that's unusual. We have good historical diet data showing that California Chinook salmon 
you know, usually have some kind of seasonal pattern to their diet. And early in the year, they might be eating crab larvae, then switching into more krill, juvenile rockfish, herring, and squid. And sort of later in the year is when they would have a, a sardine or anchovy dominated diet, like August, September, but not the whole spring, summer period. So 2019 looked like this kind of shift. The other thing that we saw was that the Chinook fishery was really good from Monterey Bay South all the way down to Morro Bay. So strong overlap with this super abundance of anchovies and not so good as you went further north. And then in 2020, 2021 and 2022, we reached out to the commercial fishing fleet and to some of the partners in the charter boat industry to collect stomachs for us. And they started holding on to stomachs. And so we've got three years now of that stomach uh, content data. And again, super dominated by anchovies with uh, very small amounts of krill and squid and juvenile rockfish and things like that, that we think are nutritionally important for them. It's sort of like having a balanced diet. And we have started to look at the nutritional profiles of these different species. And sure enough, anchovies have a really high concentration of the activity levels of this enzyme, thiaminase, and they also have very low amounts of the good stuff, the vitamin B1. The other thing we see is that they're very fatty, you know, really high lipid content. And this has been interesting in that the salmon seem to be growing well. You know, the fish look great, you know, really big, fat, robust looking adult salmon loaded up with anchovies. And I don't know if you've seen this or people you know have seen this, but you off, you know, open up the salmon and you see that their flesh color looks really pale instead of that kind of really bright, deep krill like color that you often see in, uh, in a Chinook salmon. So, you know, I think those are all indications that that anchovy diet has really affected what the fish look like and it is connected with their health. So that's one of the, the mysteries that we're working on here is trying to understand why have anchovies done so exceptionally well, starting with what were the three warmest years in the California Currents history, 2014, 15, and 16. And 2015 was the warmest single year in the history that we have of the California Current. So that's a puzzle um, that the conventional wisdom had been that anchovy stock was really booming during the cold periods where we had this kind of broad area of really good upwelling and high productivity and that anchovies could thrive and under those conditions. Well, that was not what happened in 2015 and 16 when this population took off. Interesting. Um, historically, the uh, anchovies and sardine populations off California have kind of seesawed back and forth, uh, as I understand it. A lot of the data that came from the La Jolla laboratory and scripts over the years, and it goes back, I don't know how, Cal Coffee data, I guess they call it. Yeah, back to the 40s, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other part of the conventional wisdom is that during the warm periods, the sardine populations, you know, in the past have boomed and been very abundant, supported some of the world's biggest fisheries. Yeah. And that hasn't happened either, that the sardines remain scarce. There may be a little bit of sign of, of some increase in the last couple of years, but not much. And that's been really interesting. Sound like the uh, salmon are 
pigging out on junk food. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, you kind of get that impression. Like, there's a lot to eat, and I fish, and I, I also do research out on the ocean. And, you know, the last few years, it's just been astounding to go out on the ocean anywhere from, you know, near shore to out towards the outer edge of the continental shelf, seeing these really large aggregations of anchovies, humpback whales, feeding in big groups, you know, lunch feeding on them. And then the salmon <laughs> packed in around these anchovy schools. And it is really incredible to see this concentration of marine life and, and how productive this looks. But then to find out that it's not all good news, you know, that you have this diet issue and vitamin problem that is problematic, you know, for the productivity of these fish. And, you know, I mentioned that we're developing treatments for the hatchery programs. We don't have a treatment option for the naturally spawning fish. And we don't actually know how much of an impact this is having on different populations. And it's really concerning, you know, because they're naturally spawning salmon and steelhead population in California are already doing very poorly. And the multi-year droughts that we mm -hmm. lived through, you know, 2012 to 2015, and then 2020 to 2022, those were really, really hard on most of our salmon and steelhead populations. And then you add in this vitamin problem, it makes it even worse. We've, we've interviewed some scientists that, uh, we're talking about the warming of the Pacific Ocean starting in what, what 2013, 14, something like that. And uh, they talked a lot about habitat compression. In other words, the warm water as a, as a bulb was kind of pushing a, a lot of the productivity and squishing it into a, a zone close to shore. But it sounds like salmon are actually uh, in, in maybe closer to shore because of the, the food. <laughs> Or maybe those two things are not mutually exclusive, but I, I was going to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good issue to bring up. The habitat compression and the distribution of where the anchovy are are not unrelated, right? Because those are the really productive waters are where you are upwelling nutrients. The water's colder. It's, it's the temperature range that salmon really prefer and they want to be in. So. Yeah, it does look like this habitat compression and, and just a very warm water offshore that whenever the north wind takes a break, it gets pulled in closer. And you probably also remember last summer when we had this extended period, I think it started in August, maybe at the end of July, where that warm water got really close to shore, especially off of Fort Bragg and Mendocino in the albacore fishery really took off, you know, only 10 to 20 miles out. It also brought some other exotics like Dorado and yellowfin tuna, big eye tuna. You know, there were a couple of marlin landed out of Bodega Bay. And then the bluefin tuna down here were locally within reach in August, September, October, even into November. And I think wow, bluefin yeah, caught in the first week. Of yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing pictures of them from people in Monterey. Yeah, and, you know, if you look at ocean temperatures right now, we're still in this situation where there is a lot of warm water in the Pacific. Thankfully mm -hmm. for us, it is offshore quite a bit right now. That last summer and fall, it got 
very close and even onto the continental shelf, this, this unusual warming. This winter, you know, it's been cold. We've had a lot of north wind and that has cooled things down off the west coast. So there is a cold patch off of our coast right now that extends hundreds of miles offshore. And I think that's a good thing because for the whole North Pacific, it is very, very warm that everything else is um, at near record levels. And if you look at an average temperature for the North Pacific as a whole, it has been at record high temperatures at the surface since 2014, all the way up to last year. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this is, I think, trouble brewing for when we get into a period where we don't have those north winds sustaining the cold areas off our coast. And that happens periodically. You know, we get some extended period where we either have onshore or winds out of the south or, or no wind at all. And that then cuts off the upwelling that is like the refrigerator system, uh, the water, water cooler that keeps the West Coast cool, especially in the spring and summer. And we're going to also see a switch from what we've had sort of uh, from the tropics that there was a La Nina event that persisted for three consecutive years that ended this winter. And now the forecasts from various climate modeling groups around the world are pointing towards uh, increased odds for an El Nino developing later this year and carrying through the winter. And if that happens, you know, that typically does bring a change in winds over the North Pacific and ocean currents that would favor moving a lot of that warm water that's offshore close to shore and just cutting off the Mm -hmm. cooling North winds that have been so uh, persistent in the last three or four months. So do those uh, warm temperatures offshore uh, extend up into the Gulf of Alaska? And if so, that must be uh, uh, some having potentially huge effect on on uh, Chinook salmon and other uh, other species of Pacific salmon that that kind of ride that uh, great big circular pattern around the Gulf of Alaska and uh, and do most of their adult growth. That's right, and there have been record warm years in the Gulf of Alaska, especially in the summer and fall. Uh, in most of the last seven years or eight years. So starting in the fall of 2013 and then almost every year since they have had very high temperatures out in the central offshore part of the Gulf of Alaska. And we have seen some big impacts on salmon that are using those habitats like sockeye from British Columbia. I don't know if you've seen that Fraser river sockeye returns have been just really, really low. In most recent years, there have been some really bad years in the Skeena system. Copper River sockeye went through a really rough spell. Uh, Pink salmon and Prince William Sound have had some collapse years. They've also had some good years mixed in, but there has been a really uh, sharp divide once you get out to the Bering Sea in Bristol Bay. So Bristol Bay, those fish are entering the Eastern Bering Sea for the early part of their life. And the Bering Sea is colder a lot colder than the Gulf of Alaska. Yeah. So the warm conditions that we've seen in the Gulf of Alaska look like they have been hard on, I think, pink chum, sockeye, and steelhead from the West Coast. 
And at the same time, as Bristol Bay Sock, I have had record high returns in recent years. And you know, the single highest return in their history last summer, something like 70 million with a harvest somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million. So the fishery has been booming and it's just really different set of impacts and experiences that uh, have been happening, you know, between these different major production areas. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. I remember 2015, we had a wreck of a seabird, the Casson's Auckland wreck all up and down the coast. And I think a lot of that ended up being attributed to the habitat compression. It wasn't that there were more of them dying. It was that they were closer to shore. So we actually saw them on the beaches instead of uh, they would normally die farther out to sea and sink. And the thing about 2015 that was really impactful was that all the warm water that had been offshore came onshore and stayed onshore. So, and that right. was from Alaska all the way down to Mexico. And that was a year when common MERS experienced massive die-offs from Alaska to California. About 20% of all the MERS in the Northeast Pacific died of starvation that year. Wow. It's a huge impact over a vast area. Yeah, that's a lot because there's a couple million yeah. of them. Yeah. And, you know, some of the seabird ecologists have produced really nice studies that lay out how that works. And, you know, they have very high metabolic demands. They need to eat virtually every day or they're not going to make it. So they have a short reserve that can carry them through lean times. And you can think about our fish that don't need to eat every day as they get bigger, but the larvae of many of these species are going to have to eat in order to survive to the next day and evade predators. And, you know, there were things like Pacific cod in the Gulf of Alaska in 2015 had uh, giant recruitment failures and, and then also high mortality rates for the older age class fish. So the biomass of that stock plummeted after 2015 and that had big impacts on their fishery. So 2015 is, is a standout year for a whole host of, big changes and a lot of problems for um, some of the species that, you know, we think of as uh, the normal top predators and uh, parts of the marine food web. And that includes things like California sea lions and harbor seals that <clears throat> you see really big declines in their pup survival and you know, put the brakes on what had been steadily growing populations, you know, for decades. That whole thing with MERS was interesting because, um, that first of all, the uh, that was many more times the uh, uh, impact than the uh, Exxon Bellies oil spill mm. <laughs> happened in '89. Uh, yeah. Nowhere near wiping out 20% of the population uh, along the Pacific coast. And the other thing is, John Pyatt uh, was uh, studying. Uh, kind of mer physiology in relation to population dynamics. And uh, he was uh, showing that, uh, that they have quite a, a nice buffering system energetically. They can store a fair amount. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you get beyond a certain point and they crash. And, and so he was showing, I think, during the late 70s that uh, we're having some of that kinds of those kinds of impacts. So John has a, a beautiful paper that gets into the 2015 impacts on common MERS and also what he, he put in there about fish is what he called the ectothermic vice, which I thought was a really nice concept. And 
the idea there is that ectotherms, you know, these cold-blooded species that adjust to their environmental temperature, like fish, their metabolic demands increase in a warmer ocean. So they need more food or more calories in order to get the same growth benefits or sort of metabolic benefits if nothing else changes. But at the same time, <clears throat> in many places, that warm ocean is coming with a reduced food production or food quality. So that's the whole concept of the vice that they're losing their access to calories, but their need for them increases at the same time. And he put that in, in this paper that uh, focused on 2015 as, you know, being especially problematic for many species, you know, from MERS down to things like Pacific cod. Yeah. Yeah. John's a big picture guy. For sure. Yeah, it does great work. In the time we've got left, maybe we can bring this around, uh, bring the big picture to the to the near term as well. We've, uh, of course, the big news is that we will not have a salmon fishing season uh, here for the, either commercial or recreational, is my understanding, for the whole year. Uh, are we seeing the end result of these processes that you've been describing? You know, 2015 was eight years ago. Was that basically two salmon generations ago? Are we seeing the the results of that just showing up now? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so this is the second you know, big fishery closure for California, right? 2008, nine was another period where mm -hmm. the run sizes were really low, the escapements to to the rivers were really low, and the management system responded with closures to at least reduce that one factor that will take fish out of the population and in you know this year the preseason forecast was for something like 190,000 central valley chinook and i forget what the number is for the klamath but low predictions for both key stocks that are driving the fisheries and the central valley production is really the stock complex that is underlying a lot of our west coast ocean fisheries so those low numbers are developed based on the returns of adults last year of the two-year-old the three-year-old four-year-old fish that we have models that have been developed over time to relate those age class returns to their sibling returns in the following year. So then you have to go back and say, all right, well, two year old fish last year, you know, it was 2022. So they were put in the gravel in 2020. And what happened in 2020? Really bad drought, really high temperatures, very low flows when those fish were rearing in the river and out migrating into the ocean that happened again in 2021. So we're really seeing consequences of very difficult freshwater conditions on top of populations that have been kicked very hard by the previous drought from 2012 to 2016, where they had the same kind of in river conditions and then course in 2014 15 16 they entered that ocean that was record warm which had changed the food web for them and thiamine deficiency so you have this whole host mm -hmm. of really bad 
environmental conditions that are layered onto habitats that are very compromised by the dams, the disconnection from floodplains, and water management practices that have basically, you know, flipped the hydrographs in a lot of these important spawning and rearing and migration corridors so that they're just not getting the cold water that these cold water fish are absolutely dependent upon. So yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of the proximate cause this is that most recent three year drought, but then you step back and you think, well, it's on top of, you know, that's the generation that just came off of a previous four year drought. And these are not just the droughts of the past. These are what you might consider the hot droughts of the present. So record high surface temperatures coming with this lack of water. And, you know, these cold water fish are just critically sensitive to access to that cold water when they need it. And they just haven't been getting it. You know, we get a winter like this. If we could get three or four of the next five or six winters that come with a really abundant uh, snowpack and precipitation, refill our groundwater supplies, at least the shallow groundwater, and keep our reservoirs topped off and we get cool spring weather. You know, those are the kind of things that will lead to a rebound. But what happened last summer in the Central Valley uh, in terms of the adult returns is a very low number made it back to spawn. So there just aren't going to be a lot of um, juveniles that were naturally produced that'll be able to take advantage of these great in-river conditions that are out there right now and are going to carry through into the summer. So that's the really you know unfortunate part is we didn't get a decent escapement last summer in fall that would have been in place to take great advantage of you know these good conditions and the same is true up in the Klamath and, and in the Eel and our other big river systems. Uh, so the, 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 the increase in survival rate of the uh, young salmon in the rivers can't really make up in this case for the uh, poor conditions. I mean, you can have like an, I know in pink salmon, if you get, uh, if you get, uh, you know, one or 2% uh, survival rate, uh, you know, that's not too bad if there's a lot of adults coming back, but if you, you can get up to five or 6% uh, survival in pink salmon, uh, and even then based on a, based on a relatively poor number of adults producing a, that age class, you can really still get a pretty good return. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, this is what they do, right? Is that every parent or, you know, every adult female is going to have four or 5,000 eggs for a Chinook salmon or steelhead. And if you have good survival for that family, you know, that's going to produce a lot of offspring. So this is how they bounce back. But I, you know, I think it's just good to keep in mind that there just weren't many spawners and the conditions that they spawned in were just historically really, really bad for how warm the river was last fall before this winter turned into something, you know, that uh, flipped the table on our water supply situation and, and really improved things in a way that, you know, salmon benefit from. And yeah, we did, we recently published a study that looked back at California's salmon fishery uh, over the last 170 years and something that came out of that study is that 
California salmon have always responded to multi-year wet periods with better fisheries, more fish caught and, and sort of more abundant returns. But what we see in recent years is instead of having this connection with conditions over the previous three or four years, now our salmon populations are responding to what happened three years ago or two years ago, sort of single year events. And it's not just precipitation, but it's temperature in the springtime that they become more and more simplified in their age structure that, you know, we have fewer production units in our salmon production system. It's really started to collapse down to a few big hatcheries that are driving the production in the central Valley, at least. And that is making them hypersensitive to the climate that they're mostly three-year-olds as they come back to spawn. And you go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a much better mix of age classes, like two, three, four, and five-year-old fish that they were coming from many different places. You know, before hatcheries, it was all the big tributaries and the main stem of our rivers. And then when the big dams came in, that limited it to those parts of the system that they could get to. So the valley floor and some of the creeks um, and tributaries that weren't dammed. And then these droughts are really putting a big dent in that natural production. And, you know, in the Central Valley, we've gone so far as to start trucking all the production during the drought years, just because we know that the migration corridor is so deadly if there's no cold water and, you know, the warm water predators that are abundant now in the Delta and in the river, they feel better and, you know, become more active as temperatures increase at the same time that our salmon and other cold water fish start to get stressed. And, you know, these things are taking a big toll on them during these warm years. So, you know, here at our lab, we're looking at strategies for, increasing that resilience, you know, what can we do to diversify this production system, make our salmon populations more resilient and give them a chance to better weather the next drought, because this California climate, it's always gone through these wet and dry cycles. And we know that it's going to get harder for salmon just because of climate warming that is already underway. And it's projected to get worse, you know, going forward. So it's, we need to make space for climate change to give these populations a chance. Boy, it's a, that's a tough job in the central Valley, especially, I mean, the, before you came on, we Bob and I were talking and, and in, in my field of hydrogeology, there's a, or hydrology, there's a saying that nature makes a shortage and or nature makes a drought, but man makes a shortage. And, you know, as you point out, droughts are a natural part of the California cycle. But what we have now, uh, because all of the water has been over allocated uh, to human use, uh, there's a permanent shortage. There's basically never enough water anymore. And, you know, it seems like right now we're just awash in it. But I'd be willing to make a side bet <laughs> with anyone who wants that. By the end of this year, there will be water shortages in California, and they'll be they'll be taking water away from natural resources, from fish and refuges and things like that, because 
the farmers need it more than the fish do. That argument keeps getting made over and over again in the Central Valley, and the fish lose every single time, it seems like. I mean, we just had, uh, fortunately, that order was rescinded, but the governor just ordered uh, just a couple of months ago before this latest round of atmospheric rivers to divert more water from the river systems to agriculture uh, and basically a violation of state law, but just a wave of the pen and it was a done deal. And the water board just reversed that because now there's for a while anyway, plenty of water to go around. My question though, is what about the Klamath? You know, there's big changes coming on the Klamath, uh, historic changes with the, the planned removal of the, the major dams on the main stem of the Klamath River. How do you see that uh, affecting the Klamath runs? Yeah, so that is a really hopeful development that dam removal is scheduled to be completed, I guess, next year, right? Beginning this year with the first dam and then the next three mm -hmm. <clears throat> next year. So, you know, it's the world's biggest dam removal project, the biggest salmon recovery project. And getting those dams out will be really important for providing access to some of the cold water resources that exist higher up in the basin where there are a number of spring fed tributaries, but water is a big issue in the Klamath basin, like it is in the central Valley because of the demands exceeding supplies in almost all recent years. And that has to get solved, right? It, you, the dam removal alone is not going to be enough to really bring back abundant salmon and, uh, bring back some of these life history types like spring Chinook salmon that historically were very abundant there and used that upper basin to ride out the hot summers of the kind of inland part of that watershed. So that, you know, hopefully will also be addressed in conjunction with this fish passage and, you know, getting access to some of these other tributaries, where the water might be more reliably available, you know, that's going to be good. But I think of it as, you know, trying to bring these different pieces of that production system back online and kind of make it diverse again, make it resilient again by allowing these fish to go to these different places, do what they do, which is become locally adapted to these different tributaries and start to become much more robust, you know, in the population as a whole to the kind of climate that like we talked about, California has always had you know, lots of variation between years and within years. And then we got to take steps to, again, make space for climate change because we already know, you know, where we are today, uh, it's been really hard on salmon that they don't have space for droughts. I think that uh, history tells us that that's kind of where we are right now and, and they need to be able to handle these kind of conditions. Well, it looks like we've come uh, to the end of our interview here. Nate, I want to thank you for being on our program. You're a fantastic guest. Well, it's been good talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.